Father, we thank you that you care for the oppressed, and that you care for us who are weak. We pray that we would humble ourselves before you, that we would seek your help, and that we would find mercy in your name. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I think it's typical that we think God can use humble people. Right? We're Christians. We've grown up, many of us have grown up in Christian churches. We're used to the humble birth story, the humble beginnings, the chosen one. And in our literature, our English literature as well, from everything from King Arthur to Harry Potter, that the idea that somebody humble of birth, unpopular perhaps, can rise, can succeed, and by the skin of their brow and their faithfulness and their righteousness can succeed. That's actually not the question that we have with, with Esther. Although it's typically presented that way, it's sometimes presented that way, Esther gives us a different set of problems. Can God use the homecoming queen? That's our question. Can he use the popular girl? Now, no insult to popular girls or homecoming queens. But can he use somebody who has compromised their faith? Can he use somebody who's made mistakes? Esther is an unlikely choice to topple an empire, and yet she does, by God's grace, by God's power. To understand what's going on in Esther as a whole, in this chapter in particular, we need to look at the cast of characters. So we're just going to work through the main principal cast members of this story. We're going to start with the oppressor uh, in our text, Ahasuerus, the king, the strong man. And then we're going to consider Esther. And finally, a character that's not even named in this chapter or in the book of Esther as a whole, we're going to consider Yahweh our God, our Lord, the Redeemer of heaven and earth. First then, Ahasuerus. You actually know who Ahasuerus is. If you're familiar with Daniel, if you're familiar with biblical history, he goes by another name. I will probably use that name in the course of this sermon because I'm used to using this. It sounds much more familiar to me than Ahasuerus. Uh, his name is Xerxes. He is the prince of Persia. He is a powerful Persian king. He is the powerful uh, king who led war against the Greeks, who even in the course of our chapter, in fact, the, you might wonder what's going on between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2. It obviously kind of takes a while for the king to fulfill his promise that he makes in Esther chapter 1. He says he's going to dismiss Vashti and he's going to pick a new wife. But then there's this interim period. Well, he's, in that interim period, Xerxes is busy. He is fighting a war, a losing war, with the Greeks. And he comes back frustrated, angry, and powerful. Okay? He's still powerful. He's still king of the Persians. But he comes back frustrated and angry. He's lost his war his people are up in arms against him. He needs a success. And so what does the powerful man do at this point? He flexes his muscles. All of this chapter 
is oriented around, the situation in which Esther finds herself is a king trying to flex his muscles, okay, trying to show off, trying to show the world how powerful he is, okay? What we've got is somebody, we've got the, the uh, elderly man overcompensating for his weaknesses, okay? That's the, I mean, this is, this is literature, this is narrative, uh, narrative, this is narrative, and we are working with stereotype characters, and Xerxes is a stereotype. He is a bumbling, powerful ruler overcompensating for his weaknesses. He's flexing his muscles. He's trying to show the world and his immediate rulers how powerful he is. This is actually what's going to lead to his death because he's so powerful he can take his general's wives and do whatever he wants with them. His generals obviously disagree and they eventually assassinate him. But right now, Xerxes is flexing his muscles. And he does that uh, by appointing this beauty contest. We need to understand what's going on in this beauty contest. This isn't Cinderella, okay? This isn't, oh, I'm going to invite anybody who wants to, and you have an opportunity to be queen. That's not what's going on here. This isn't a Cinderella. This is a Cinderella situation. This is, exact, this is actually... The, like, it's like the male equivalent, of, excuse me, it's like the female equivalent of what uh, Pharaoh does in Egypt. The Pharaoh wants to flex his muscles, wants to show how powerful he is, so what does he do? He kills all of the Hebrew boys. Xerxes wants to show how powerful he is, and he's a red-blooded male, so what does he do? He gathers all of the girls in the kingdom all of the young virgins, the most beautiful young virgins of the kingdom. Notice that everybody else is powerless in this situation. You see, in Cinderella, the, the future queens, they go to this ball. This is different. You are forced to go, and it's not a ball, it's a harem that you are to join in. Now, some perhaps went willingly, some unwillingly. We are not told what Esther's take on this situation is. In fact, we don't get a lot of information about how Esther and Mordecai are processing the things that are going on around them. But make no mistake about it, this is not a kind, blessed thing that Xerxes is doing. He is flexing his muscles. He is oppressing his citizens by forcing them to do what he wants. This is similar to the, uh, what you see, for example, in the Scottish rebellion with Prima Nocta. This is the king taking what he can take in the way he wants to take it. This is an example of what oppressors do. Xerxes is not a good guy. He is an oppressor. He is a powerful man doing whatever he can to oppress the citizens around him. And the Jews are caught up in this power struggle between Xerxes, his generals, his advisors, and the rest of the nation. What do you do in those kinds of situations? Esther is faced with this question of, uh, and Mordecai too, they're faced with this question, how do you behave 
when the powers that be are doing things beyond your control and you can't change it. There's no revolution that you can lead. There's no uh, sit-in that you can engage in that's going to change the course of events. You either go as you're summoned or you stay home and are possibly killed. What do you do when the powerful are pushing you around and pushing you to do things that God would not have you do? God has promised Israel that He will redeem them from oppression. He has promised Israel before He sends them out into Babylon, and which was later captured by Persia, which is the kingdom that we're in right now. Before He sends them out, He says, I will restore you. I will return you. And I will return all your fortunes. Everything that has been taken from you, you will get back tenfold. But that doesn't change Esther's situation. She still has to ask the question, how are you going to use me to do that? How, God, are you going to do that in my life? How does that change the way I face my decision here before me to go to the harem or to rebel and resist? Let's turn to Esther then and consider what she decides to do. If God is going to redeem Israel, if He's going to save Israel from the coming calamity in the book of Esther and from the exile in general, we have to recognize that Esther is an unlikely choice. She's an unlikely choice for all the obvious reasons. She's an unlikely choice because she's a poor, orphaned Jew in a powerful empire. She's a poor, orphaned Jewish girl who has nothing to offer. You know, she's, she's, not, she doesn't, uh, she's not a commanding warrior. She doesn't have great influence among her own people, certainly, among the Persians. It is, diff- it, is, it is difficult for Esther to know how God is going to use her. She is an oppressed woman in a city and kingdom that is ruled by men, bumbling but powerful men, and there's not much that she has to offer. You actually see that throughout the book. Uh, For example, you see it with Vashti. Vashti, in the previous chapter, she resists. The king asks her to do something that she doesn't want to do, something that would be indecent for her to do, and she resists. And the king, Xerxes, won't have it. No rebellion. And he puts her away. He sends her out. He replaces her. I raised you up as queen. I can get rid of you again. What is Esther supposed to do? But she's an unlikely choice for another reason as well. And I, I don't want to ruffle feathers here, but, but Esther isn't Daniel. Esther's not Joseph. Esther She's not only not all that powerful or savvy or influential in her society, she's also not all that faithful. She's not all that righteous. She's not a hero. She's not a hero type. Now, she will be by the end, but at this point, she's just not the righteous, rebellious resistor that you might be expecting. She's not the kind that's going to topple an empire. 
Well, we need to demonstrate this. That seems counterintuitive. Isn't Esther the hero of her own book? In many ways, she is, but at this point in the story, she is not all that heroic. First of all, notice that she is still in Persia. She is still under the rule of Xerxes. She has had, actually, she and her family have had the opportunity to leave. They've had it for about 50 years now. Any Jews who want to at this time are allowed to leave and go back to Jerusalem. And many do. We have that recorded for us in Ezra and Nehemiah. Many of the righteous, faithful Jews, they know that the best way that they can serve God is by serving God in the temple. And so they go to where the temple is. They go back to Jerusalem. Some of the Jews stay behind. And the result is this tension, whether it's justified or not, who can say at this late historical date. But there's this tension that exists, and it exists into the time of the New Testament, between those who went back to Palestine and those who stayed. Those who stayed in the kingdoms in which they were exiled. And the stereotype is that those who went back, they were the faithful. They were the true. They were the ones who really got it, who really cared about God. And those who stayed, those who were still content in the pagan kingdoms in which they dwelt, they were the compromisers. They gave lip service to the Lord God of Israel, but they didn't really believe. They weren't committed enough because they stayed, because they didn't distance themselves. So already at the very beginning, you have a kind of cloud over Esther and Mordecai. Are they compromisers? Do they really get it? Do they really care about the covenant? And make no mistake about it, Mordecai, he wants to save his people. He wants to prevent genocide. Who wouldn't want to prevent the genocide of your own people? But he never prays about it. He never appeals to the covenant. He never acts on the basis of that covenant and says, our God will redeem us. He never pulls a Daniel and says, I won't have these foods, I won't do these things, I won't participate in this because I need to keep my identity as a Jew. Esther, in fact, is so good at hiding her identity as a Jew that no one bothers to ask her that she's a, uh, or find out whether she's a Jew until the middle of the story. And she is the one who offers that information. And it's in a time of trial. It's in a time of trouble. It's when genocide is coming, suddenly she reveals that she is Jewish. And that's when she really owns her heritage. That's when she becomes a hero, kind of in the middle of the story. But in the front part, in the first half of the story, she hides the fact that she's Jewish. This harem is another indication that Esther might have some regrets in her life. Remember when Daniel is brought into the court. He never loses his identity. He doesn't eat the foods that are given to him. He doesn't participate in the various court trappings that would deny his Jewish heritage. Esther has a very different approach. She takes not only the foods, which presumably would have been similar to Daniel's foods, unclean for a Jew to eat, but she also receives all the makeup, all of the beautifying, 12 months of beautifying. You remember in 1 Peter, Peter instructs the women of the church. He says, don't worry about makeup and beautiful things and all that kind of stuff. 
have the humility that Abraham's wife had. Have the humility of Sarah. Your beauty is your righteousness. Okay? Esther is taking a different approach. Maybe she's righteous, maybe she's not, but she's getting makeup. She's getting the beautifying. She's taking on that 12 months of oils and incense that's going, coming her way. Not only that, this harem is not a righteous place to be. The Bible, as uh, it uh, sometimes will be, is remarkably delicate about this. But these women are going in and, uh, and they're not coming out virgins again. That's why there's two harems. There's the harem that you go into as a virgin, and then there's the harem that you go into after that one night with the king. And you stay there for the rest of your life. Why? Because no one else will have you. The king has had you, and no one else will. Your job now is to please the king by just being present. And Esther, we are thankful, we can be thankful that she eventually marries this king. But Esther is part of the system. And that first night happened before her marriage. And her marriage is, in fact, conditioned upon it. What would we have done if we were in a similar situation? Would we have stood up and said, No, it is against the law of my God? and suffered the consequences? Or would we adapt to the culture around us? Everybody's doing it. I will do it too. Esther's not a hero. Not yet. Not in Esther chapter 2. She's caught up in this power struggle. She's in an impossible situation. We can sympathize with the difficulties that she is facing, but she doesn't stand up and rebel. She doesn't pull a Harry Potter or a Daniel or the Gladiator or a Rosa Parks or a Martin Luther King. She doesn't say, no, this isn't right. I'm not going to do it. Come what may, I will stand up for what I believe in. That will come, but it's not here. Who's the hero of the book of Esther? God is going to use Esther. He's going to prepare Esther. He's going to mold her into the hero that we want and that he wants. But the real hero isn't Esther. It's God. Esther, forgive me if you don't know the reference, Esther is Katniss Everdeen. She's not all that heroic. She's not all that faithful. She's constantly compromising. She doesn't stand up for what she believes in. She folds and she folds and she folds again. And people around her die. The hero isn't Esther. It's the God who is working through Esther. We turn now to the third char character, the silent character that we don't meet by name in the book might make you wonder if you've read the book of Esther from cover to cover, you might be wondering, where's all the praying? Where's all the calling upon God for salvation that we saw in like Judges and that Daniel did and that David constantly is doing with the Philistines and that 
Mary did when she was visited by angels? And where do you see that kind of hymnody and prayer and standing firm on the covenant promises? God isn't even mentioned in the book. But He's on every page. In the book of Esther, you find God in the coincidences. You find God in the little details that line up just right to put Esther in the right position at the right time. God is all over the book. It's just no one recognizes Him as such. No one sees Him as such. No one refers to Him as the true hero of the story because He's in the details. He's in the little coincidences. It's not a coincidence that when Xerxes gets back, the most beautiful woman in the kingdom is a Jew. It's not a coincidence that this Jewish woman doesn't have parents and so is living with Mordecai, who, it's not a coincidence, has some relationship to this royal family, this royal entourage. He's part, he's not in the family, but he's part of the entourage of Xerxes and his cohorts. These aren't coincidences. These are, these are things that God has been lining up ages and ages and ages past, and they're all starting to come to a head. They're all starting to unfold and to, to direct the story in the way God wants it directed. It's not a coincidence in this chapter that Mordecai overhears a plot to assassinate the king. And that Mordecai then reports it to Esther and Esther reports it to the king and the king, now already in love with Esther, now recognizes that Esther is not just this object to be loved, not just this woman to be analyzed and taken advantage of, but actually an asset in his kingdom. It's not a coincidence that later on, it's precisely these events that take place in this chapter that means that, that Esther can do something that Vashti never was able to do. Vashti disobeyed her king and was punished for it. Esther later on will say, I'm going into the king. He hasn't called me. I'm going, I'm going in. I know it's not protocol. I know it's not the law of the land. I know I'm not allowed to do it. But I'm going in anyway. And the king receives her. Why? Because she's built up trust. Because she was in the right place at the right time. It's not a coincidence that Haman later and Mordecai will fight. And that at that moment, when Haman decides to eradicate all of Israel, the only thing standing in her way is a young, poor, Jewish girl who no one up to this point knows is a Jew. And God has placed her as queen to Xerxes, the man who can stop everything. So it's not a coincidence that when the time comes, the gallows that was built for Mordecai is used for Haman. That's what God does. He's in the details. 
Sometimes we see Him clearly, sometimes we don't. Sometimes the Bible tells us exactly what's going on, sometimes it doesn't. But God is always present, always at work, always using those little events in our lives that seem to be meaningless to construct this great story, the story in which the proud are humbled and the humbled are exalted, the story in which the poor are made rich and the rich are made poor, the story in which we are all molded from the sinful, mistaken people that we are to heroes in God's house, not because of the things that we've done, but because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This story is a reminder to us then that Christmas is about coincidences, okay? Christmas is about coincidences. It's no accident that Jesus was born in the family that he was born in. It's no accident that that family... You know, you think about the story of Luke and the level of coincidences that have to line up so that at the end of that story, God can say, I prophesied this a long time ago. Out of Egypt I called my son. Imagine the level of detail, the level of planning that had to take place. You see, Jesus wasn't born in Egypt. He had to be driven there, and he was driven there by a powerful king trying to flex his muscles. He was driven there by a powerful king taking a census. And why do you take a census? You take, not today, but in the ancient world, you took a census to show everybody else how powerful you were. It's like weighing yourself, okay? It's like bench pressing. The census is bench pressing for kings. It's them showing themselves, showing how powerful that they are. A king showing how powerful he is through oppressing a group of people and forcing them to, take, to go to the census, forcing them to be gathered. That king then, uh, uh, now Herod, searching for these children, searching for Jesus the Messiah, forcing them into Egypt. And then when Herod dies... Out of Egypt I called my son. It's not coincidence. It's God. He's in control of all of history. He's directing it according to his great purposes. And he's, what he is doing is he's putting Jesus, his son, in the best possible place at the best possible time so that as he lives a righteous life, as he does stand faithful and stand firm, what happens is, is the world kills him. And on the third day, he rises from the dead in fulfillment of prophecy so that God would be the one who exalts the humble and humbles the exalted. The cross flips the world on its head. This community founded by Christ flips the world on its head. Not many of us were wise. Not many of us were rich. Not many of us were influential. But God gathered us, not because we were all that powerful, not because we were that beautiful, not because we were wise, not because we could lead rebellions. He gathered us because He loved us. And He wants to humble this prideful, arrogant, oppressive world. What does this passage teach us? It teaches us that God is not idle. 
You might not know why you are stuck in the airport. Why, by a series of coincidences, your plane doesn't have a door. And so you are going to be taking a plane tomorrow. You, you might not know why you are experiencing the things that you are experiencing, but you can be confident that God is using those things as part of His great plan. They are little events, they are little snags that God is using to construct this great story. And the narrative that God is telling, the story that God is telling is the rags to riches story. The poor become rich and the rich become poor because God is just. Christmas is about coincidences and those coincidences are all driving towards the exaltation of Jesus Christ and us with Him. Let's pray.